0: Well, good morning, everybody. You ready for summer to be over? Well, it is. Get over it. That's the bad news. I have some good news for you. We'll talk about that as we go on. Okay? Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1. If you have a Bible with you, great. If not, there's one you can use under the, uh, some one of the chairs around you. Ephesians chapter 1. And my guess is, most of you have heard, we're, uh, we're beginning a, a study today of this New Testament uh, letter written by the Apostle Paul somewhere around 60 AD. Uh, and it's a fascinating document, uh, and we're going to kind of work our way through it. And I just want to read for you the opening, the opening words, because it's just fascinating how, how Paul does this. So he starts his letter this way, beginning in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, he says this, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through, through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace so that he lavished on us. So I don't know how you respond to that, uh, but that's pretty, for me, it's a pretty intense way to start a letter. Um, I mean, Paul, he wastes no time just getting right into uh, some serious theology there. But for the sake of summary, and just so you know, Ephesians overall uh, is a document that, that essentially addresses what it means to be a Christian, you know, a follower of Jesus. And then along with that, Paul, in his writing, goes to great lengths to lay out for his readers, you know, as best as, as, best as he can, a clarification of God's sort of overarching uh, purpose for us uh, as individuals and as as the church. In fact, when talking about this purpose early on in chapter one, Paul refers to the plan specifically the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And the Greek term he uses there for plan carries the idea of a carefully detailed design uh, or blueprint. In other words, Paul assures his listeners, you know, that God doesn't. God doesn't operate the universe by the seat of his divine pants. You know, he knows what he's doing. Uh, he has a specific plan for us as his people, a blueprint, if you will, uh, outlining who we are and how we're to live in this broken world. And so Paul does his apostolic best to explain all that to us. Um, by way of introduction, Paul identifies himself in verse 1 as the author of the letter. He addresses it to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, Um, You know, for some of you who may not know this, Paul played a significant role in establishing the church in in Ephesus. He lived there about two years. Uh, Ephesus was a port city on the Aegean Sea in Asia Minor, which is now modern Turkey. And I say it was a port city. The the ruins of the city remain in the same place, but the Aegean Sea has receded six miles over the last 2,000 years. So uh, the ruins of the city are no longer right on the coast. But in Paul's day, it was a port. It was a big port. It was an active port. Uh, In the first century, it was known as the mother city of Asia uh, because of its influence over the politics, the commerce, and the religious atmosphere of the region. Uh, Roads from the north, from the south, from the east all uh, converged in Ephesus. And so with with it being a port, with trade, with, with the shipping industry there, it made it a hub of commercial activity. In his book, Geography, First Century Greek Historian Strabo, describes it this way. He said, "In the, ci- the city, because of its advantageous situation, grows daily and is the largest market in Asia. So Ephesus basically was a happening place. It was a, a commercialized, multicultural city, Uh, the second or third largest in the world at the time, with a population of uh, around 200,000 individuals. Uh, And it was a destination for people. It was a place people wanted to go because of all that was happening there. In verse 2, Paul greets his friends who lived in Ephesus, saying, grace and peace to you. Grace and peace were customary Gentile and Jewish greetings, respectively, not to mention themes that Paul uh, touches on later in his letter. And here's the thing. I mean, Paul says a lot in this letter. He says an awful lot in it, and for me, the risk, the risk is to get bogged down in the nitty gritty of it all and, and lose sight of the big picture. And so I'm gonna do my best not to let that happen, but it is challenging. I mean, this opening section alone is, is prime example. I mean, in the original Greek, verse three through 14 is one long run on sentence. It's this huge one-on sentence, and it's like Paul took a breath and he let it all out, and, 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 and it's just packed with theologic, theologically loaded terms and concepts, uh, all of which are fascinating to explore uh, on their own. But um, what I would like to do, at least this morning, is to focus, uh, and, and focus our attention primarily on the statement Paul makes in verse 3, where he, he writes this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And if you stop and you think about that, I mean, that's an amazing claim, isn't it? You know, in the New Testament, understand, in the New Testament, the term blessing means more than just wishing someone uh, well. The term carries the idea of favor, carries the idea of benefits, the kind of benefits that as human beings, our, our hearts, our minds, our souls long for. And by using the term in the past tense, uh, Paul indicates that you know God's favor on us isn't just a future deal; uh, it's a present deal. It's a past deal. He, he's indicating that if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been favored by God already with every spiritual benefit there is. But what does that mean exactly? What are the benefits, and how do we get them? And it seems to me the text. Uh, text provides the answers. For example, <clears throat> how to get them. Notice Paul ends his statement in verse three with the phrase "in Christ." He actually repeats this idea s- several times using slightly different language. In verse, in verse three, he says "in Christ." Verse four, "in Him." Verse six, "in the One." Verse seven, "in Him." Verse eight, "in Christ." I mean, clearly, Paul is is pressing a point here, namely that becoming a Christian. Uh, is, not, is not simply about acknowledging Jesus as a king to obey, although he is that. And it's not um, simply about recognizing Jesus as a model to follow, although he's that as well. Uh, neither is it just seeing him as a rescuer to be grateful to, although we certainly should be grateful. Paul is saying more. Paul's saying that when we express faith in Jesus, we are, in a spiritual sense, uh, placed in him, so that everything that is his becomes ours. Uh, i.e., we're united with him. United in what way? We're united with him, not literally, but but in a cosmic sense. We're, liter- we're, we're, we're united to him legally. It's like, you know, it's like um, it's like when you get married. If you have no wealth uh, of your own, but you marry someone of affluence, you know, they have everything, you have nothing. When you marry them, their wealth becomes your wealth, even though you've, you've done nothing to earn any of it. You know, what's theirs is legally yours. And the same is true with Jesus. Your faith in him unites you to him in a cosmic legal sense. In a letter to Christians living in the city of Rome, Paul uh, talks about this. He talks about how, in his words, we're united with Jesus in a death like his and united with him in a resurrection like his. What did Paul mean? He meant that when we believe in Jesus, we are so united to him, with him, in him, that when he paid the penalty for our sin on the cross, it's the same as as if we died with him. And therefore, his triumph over death, his resurrection to life, is our triumph over death, our resurrection to life. That's why later in the same letter to, to those Roman believers, Paul writes this. He says, there is now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ. No condemnation. Why? Because God views us in light of Jesus. Everything he did, it's like we did. Everything he accomplished is like we accomplished. The son is certainly not condemned by the father. Neither does the father condemn us. For we are in the son, in him, in the one. We are in Christ. You track with that? Which, when you think about it, in a way, uh, that explains why, when it, when it comes to faith, there, there's, really no, there's really no middle ground. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. You know, sometimes when I'm talking to people about religion and faith and, and that kind of a thing, I'll say, you know, are you a Christian? And sometimes people will just say, well, no, I'm not. But many people will respond and say, well, I'm trying to be which indicates to me that they may not necessarily know what it really means to be a Christian. Because being a Christian is not, it's not a, a step-by-step, give-it-a-shot, try-your-best, earn-as-you-go process. You know, either, either you believe or you don't believe in Jesus. Either you're accepted or you're not accepted, either forgiven or you're not forgiven. Either you're in Christ or you're not in Christ. And while it's true, your journey... You know, your journey to faith may be a process. Becoming a Christian uh, means that there is a defining moment in your journey, a defining moment in your experience when the sort of the light bulb goes off and, and you, you finally get who Jesus is and what he's done for you. If you finally realize what, what what's true, and you give up on your works-oriented religion and you embrace the grace of God, and you believe, realizing that your identity, your identity is no longer wrapped up in your, in your, in your performance, or in your, your popularity, your productivity, or your prominence. Your identity is in him, in the one, in Jesus, in Christ. I mean, listen. You know, if, uh, if salvation was something to earn, then it would be a step-by-step. It would be accomplished in stages. It would be a step-by-step deal, right? But because it's by grace that we're saved, that's how Paul puts it later in this letter, because it's by grace that we're saved, there comes a point, there comes a time, there comes a moment when we simply receive the grace that's offered. We believe, we have faith, that we're forgiven, we're accepted, uh, we're placed in Christ, we're united with him, to him, forever, resulting in God. Blessing us, favoring us with every spiritual benefit. What are the benefits? Paul's language here, especially his use of the term every, implies that there are many of them, maybe too many to list in one place. So he mentions two specifically, and they're significant ones. The first benefit, he says, is adoption. You know, Paul writes how through Jesus we are we experience adoption to sonship, he says. Translation. Faith in Jesus brings us not just into the divine kingdom as citizens, not just into heaven as recipients of divine grace, but personal faith brings us into the family of God itself as sons and daughters. And therefore, adoption means, uh, it means intimacy. You know, God is no longer just the creator of the universe, but he's he's our father in heaven. A father whose love never falters, it never fails. With that being true, think of some of the other things adoption means. It means access. I mean, imagine your father was president of the United States. How does that all work? Well, as far as I understand, anyone who, without an appointment, without clearance, doesn't get to the president. And if they try to, they're stopped, to say the least. But as his child, you get to run to him anytime you want. No interference. Why? Because he's your father. The same is true on a much greater scale with, 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 with God, a much grander scale with God, because he too is your father. And so there is intimacy. And there's, you have open access to him anytime, all the time. Adoption also means inheritance. And um, you know, I realize that some people might read this text and view Paul's use of the term sonship as being, as being exclusive and sexist. Uh, and I get why, but uh, the reality is Paul was being the very opposite of sexist. Because keep in mind, uh, in first century culture, only sons could uh, could be heirs. Only sons could inherit the riches of the father. And so in the New Testament, when Paul repeatedly, over and again, writes to Christians saying, you are all adopted as sons and daughters. All of you are sons. Essentially, he's saying, all of you as Christians are co-heirs in God's kingdom. So make no mistake about it, Paul was not being exclusive, he is being radically inclusive with this language. Uh, in another letter that he wrote to uh, Christians living in the city of Galatia, he put it this way, he said, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, heirs, all of you, according to the promise. What, what is Jesus's is ours. We're heirs together. So, adoption means inheritance. It also means security. Now, think of it this way. If you're you're an employee of a company, uh, how often does your employer allow you to mess up before they fire you? I'm not sure how to answer that question because every employer is different, right? But if you're a parent, how often do you allow your child to mess up before you fire them? You may wanna fire them, right? (laughs) But you don't fire them. You can't fire your, your child. You, you love them. You, you know, Even when they mess up, you still love them. The same is true with God. As sons and daughters, we are secure in the Father's love. Although, that being said, because of adoption, because we're his children, because he loves us, well, that means that sometimes there, there, there are instances when God disciplines us. You know, times... When as a loving father, he doesn't necessarily divert pain away from us, but allows a certain degree of, of suffering to enter our experience in order to teach us, to mature us, to strengthen us. So those are those a are few aspects of adoption, one of the benefits of being in Christ. But then Paul goes on to say that, here's another one, he says, in him we have, we have redemption. And the Greek term he uses, literally translated means buying back from, and it carries the idea of paying a ransom for something that's been forfeited. Uh, I was driving through Carroll Stream the other day, and I drove by a towing company that has this small brick office building and a big, large parking lot you know, that's surrounded by a fence and security cameras. And it's, uh, it's where impounded vehicles are imprisoned. And I don't know if you've ever had your car impounded or not, but uh, if you have, you know the only way to get it back is to what? To pay a fee. Right? You got to pay a fee to get it out, and that fee is essentially a ransom that, when paid, releases the car from vehicle captivity. Right? <laughs> that's the same idea of the word that Paul uses. This term redemption. That's what it means. It means to buy back something that's been forfeited, buy back and free it. Paul says, "In Jesus, we have this. We have this redemption. We are bought back, and we are set free." You know, this idea of freedom. It's interesting. Um, Mahatma Gandhi, the, the famous leader of Indian nationalism, often talked about, about how Eastern religion and Western religion, all of, all of them agree that human beings are not free. We are not free. We are all captive. We're all slaves to, to selfishness and to ego. And Gandhi, was, he was an admirer of Jesus, and he believed that Christianity can actually help people because he said, with Jesus, you have a way to be freed from your selfishness. In an article titled, What Jesus Means to Me, Gandhi explained it this way. He said, Jesus was one of the greatest teachers humanity has ever had. He was the highest example of one who wished to give everything, asking nothing in return, not caring what creed might happen to be professed by the recipient. I mean, basically, Gandhi said, follow Jesus' teaching and his example, and you will be free. But with all due respect to Gandhi, I mean, does that work for you? Because it doesn't work for me. It doesn't work at all for me. and I'll tell you why. I think of Jesus, and here Jesus comes. He lives this perfectly pure life, no selfishness, no egocentricity, uh, no greed. He's never driven by the need for approval, power, security, none of that. He was truly free from those things. And when I see him loving, loving people, even his enemies, And I see him serving others and and sacrificing for them and forgiving everyone and anyone. And then you tell me the only way for me to be free from my stuff is to live up to his example. (laughs) That's a bummer for me. That's debilitating. That's crushing. That's discouraging. I can't do that. I mean, if Jesus is just a teaching example to follow, as Gandhi suggested, I'm in trouble And sorry to say, so are you. That doesn't help us. It doesn't help me. It just makes me feel worse about myself. Don't get me wrong. I can use an example. But what I really need is a savior, a rescuer, a redeemer, who comes and pays my ransom and sets me free from sin. Listen, as human beings... uh, we're all enslaved to sin and to selfishness all of us are we know it deep down inside we know it deep down inside we realize we're not as good as we as we should be we're not as good as we could be we're not who we, are, we ought to be and so we spend we spend and ex- we expend a lot of uh, uh, of energy and effort trying to prove ourselves i mean we really do in secular circles we try to prove ourselves through physical beauty accomplishments education career success wealth in religious circles, we try to prove ourselves through moral devoutness, through the words that we use, through the things that we wear, through the, you know, the, the rituals that we keep, through the pious regulations we follow. I mean, religious or irreligious makes no difference. As human beings, we all have this desire to be seen as good. Yet, no matter how hard we try to prove ourselves, we always fall short of perfection. We're enslaved we're enslaved by our sin. We're enslaved by this pursuit of proving ourselves to be good. And Paul says, Jesus has come to free us. He's come to redeem us from those things. But how? You know, how, how are these spiritual benefits made available to us? I mean, how do, we, how, do, how, do we, how do we get adopted and redeemed? Well, Paul explains. He says, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Ray K. Translation. We're not saved from sin and welcomed into God's family merely through Jesus' teaching example. We are rescued, we're adopted, we're redeemed, we're freed through his blood. In other words, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. On the cross, he experienced the judgment and death we all deserve. He took our place. It's through his perfect sacrifice that forgiveness of sin is graciously made available to everyone. Jesus died for you and for me. And when we come to to truly understand that, I mean really know it, really um, believe it, embrace it, accept it, our lives are changed. From the inside, our lives are changed rationally and experientially. What do I mean by that? I mean that the truth of God's grace and forgiveness, the true knowledge of it in my head, objectively rids me of fear and guilt and shame. But that knowledge of God's grace and forgiveness subjectively overwhelms my emotions because I have found and experienced the unconditional love that my broken, sinful human heart desperately longs for. And so that begs the question, how do we know? if we've received these spiritual benefits? How do we know for sure if we're adopted, redeemed, freed, and forgiven? Well, it's interesting. Paul says, God has, he has blessed us. He's favored us with these spiritual benefits in Christ. And then he says, to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace, meaning what? Meaning that if and when you truly come to know and experience these things, the reality of it all, becomes absolutely glorious to you. You know, the the incredible beauty of God, the wonder of his love, it just captures your heart. It overwhelms you, and in understanding what's been done for you, you just can't help but praise him for his grace. You can't help it. It's like David in the Old Testament. When he experienced God's grace and forgiveness, he couldn't help but write a song. Uh, Here are the lyrics. David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Now, some of us are going to say, well, that's all well and good for David, you know, good for him, but I'm not a musician. I'm not, a, I'm not an artist. I'm not a songwriter. I'm not a poet. Okay. That's not really the point. The point is that when you know and experience the glorious grace of God, and you you, you get it in your head, your heart, you can't help but acknowledge it. You can't help but acknowledge it. You can't help but talk about it, sing about it, describe it, tell others about it, praise it. Praise him for it. See? Christian author, thinker C.S. Lewis once wrote about aesthetics. And aesthetics is a branch of philosophy that deals with the nature and appreciation of beauty, art, taste, etc. And Lewis talked about how, as, as human beings, we are deeply impacted by things of beauty, and we delight in praising those things, whatever, whatever they may be. Like Lewis said, he said, I'd never noticed before that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into, into praise. He said, um, he said, the world rings with praise. If you think about it, it rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poets, walk, walkers praising the countryside. He said, players praising their favorite game. Uh, there, there's praise of weather, there's praise of wine, there's praise of dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages. There's praise of children, flowers, uh, uh, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. And then he said, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible, which is an interesting thing, isn't it? Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. Then Lewis said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise does not merely express but completes the enjoyment. It's the appointed consummation. He said, it's not simply to compliment that lovers keep telling each other how beautiful they are. The delight itself is incomplete until it is expressed. Now, Lewis's observation on all this is quite profound. But it's something we all know to be true. Right? I mean, think about this. When you find music that, that, that's beautiful to, the, to you, that you love, I mean, you, you want to you take your, your iPhone, your, your, your MP3, or whatever you have, you want to take it to your friend, you, you push an earbud at him, you say, hey, stick this in your ear and listen, man, this is awesome, this is great, you got to hear it. Got to hear it. Or if you taste a certain food or a recipe that's, that's absolutely delicious to you, what do you want to do? You want to share it. Not all of it, but a little of it, right? You want to, you want to share it. You want to share with someone. <laughs> if you see a piece of art that's just moving and strikingly beautiful, you want to show it to somebody. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, my family, we went, to, uh, we went out to California for vacation, for a week's vacation. My son lives out in Orange County. And so we went, uh, we went up to Big Bear Lake. Uh, it's up in the San Bernardino Mountains, 7,000 feet above sea level, uh, where it is um, uh, not a cloud in the sky every day. Not a cloud in the sky, about 80 degrees. Uh, sunny, no humidity, no mosquitoes. We kept asking, why do we live in Chicago? <laughs> you know, it, was just, it was gorgeous there. And at night, it was really amazing. No light pollution, because you're above it, right? And so the sky is just brilliant with stars and shooting meteors and all of that. And one night, um, everyone else had, had gone to bed, and I, I just walked out alone on this dock that was there. And so I was able to walk out uh, from beneath some of the trees and get a really good look at the, the sky. And, it, I mean, it was incredible. You could see the Milky Way. I saw the, the Big Dipper, the Little Dipper. All the Dippers were there. And... Um, <laughs> It, it was it was incredible. In fact, when I, I turned to the west, and I saw, and there was the Big Dipper right up. I mean, it was it was huge. I guess it makes sense. I'm seven thousand feet closer to it, right? So it's, it's just it's glaring. It's, and I had this moment, you know, this awe-inspiring moment. And so the next morning, we're, we're out on the uh, on the on the deck drinking some coffee, and I said, "I saw the Big Dipper last night. You guys got to come out tonight and see the Big Dipper." Everyone's like, I've "Seen the Dipper before? It's a big deal. I've seen the Dipper." But they, they, you know, they humored me, and when it got dark enough, we went out on the dock, and they saw the dipper. I mean, it was like, holy smokes, it's huge, you know, it's beautiful. And then we saw the little dipper, and we're looking at all these things, and we're just overwhelmed by it, by the beauty of it. See, here's the deal. You know it, and I know it. When we experience something wondrous, wondrously beautiful, we want to share it. We want to talk about it. And that's what Lewis was saying. That's what he was getting at. He's saying there's something about the beautiful thing itself that that makes us react the way that we do. A beautiful object demands praise, and the joy we experience from it just has to get out. It's like we'll explode if we don't say something. In fact, our joy isn't complete until it expresses itself. And when another person says, you're right, it is beautiful, it makes it all the more joyful for us. See, we don't simply express our joy we complete our joy when we praise the object of beauty. And if you don't get that, if you don't if you don't understand that, then you're probably you're probably not going to understand the things Christians do when we get together in a place like this. It's like it's like we have to get together because the more beautiful and magnificent an object is, the more joy we find in it. And the praise of it has to get out, and we want to share that praise with others who recognize the exact same beauty. And so when we when we're together. It's like we're saying to each other, look at the beauty, look at the, look at the love, the magnificence, the glory of God, the grace of God. And honestly, if you don't share the same intense need to express yourself about God and to God and praise him, I, I wonder how great and wonderful you really think he is. Or whether or not you've actually experienced his glorious grace. I mean, why do you think I come back from vacation to stand up here week after week? I'm here because I see the beauty and the magnificence of God and the, the glorious grace of Jesus, and I'm just trying to find new ways of saying to you, man, oh man, you've got, you've got to see this. You've got to, you got to hear this. You've got to understand this. You've got, you got to experience this. You've got to accept this and embrace this. Have you? That's the question. If so, then you know firsthand how God's glorious grace changes both your mind and your heart. It's both and. It changes all of us. All of us. All parts of us. Paul writes his friends in, in Ephesus and he says, Praise be to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, to the praise of of his glorious grace. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is so easy to, um, in life and the hectic schedules we keep, to lose sight of your greatness and of your glory, of your grace. And I pray that as your people we would have those moments um, where we once again recognize what is true. We see the beauty of what you've done for us. We see the beauty of your love. We see the glorious beauty of your, your grace offered to us in Jesus. Adoption, forgiveness, redemption, freedom. We see it. We wonder over it. And we can't help but praise you for it. I pray, I pray that this would be one of those moments. We offer it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I hope, I hope it, it, it's, it's clear to you, and if not, that it becomes clear, that being a Christian, it doesn't happen by osmosis. It doesn't happen just by hanging out with other Christians or around them. Neither does it happen by just trying to follow as best you can Jesus' example and try to be as good as you can to prove yourself. Jesus came to free us from all that. He came to free us from sin, free, free us from this need to prove ourselves. He came and lived the life we could never live and died the death we deserve to die. And believing, him in, that's what it, believing in Him, that's what it means to be a Christian. We're going to see that talked about over and over in Paul's letter. In fact, this week I, I encourage you to just sit down for a few minutes, read through the letter, as if you had a friend named Paul who wrote it, wrote it to you. Just read through it. It'll take about 20 minutes. Read through the whole thing, and then go back and read chapter one again. Next week we're going to come back uh, and we're going to talk about uh, some things that Paul writes later in chapter one. These these kind of these hot button words: election, predestination, chosen. God's will, all of that makes people anxious. We're going to talk a little bit about it. What's interesting is this idea of free will. Do we have free will? Do we not have free will? It's not just a religious conversation. It's actually a scientific conversation. Uh, A number of secular physicists believe that we have no choice. We have no free will it's an ongoing conversation in in our culture so we're going to talk a little bit about that and how it relates to our lives i think you'll find it helpful if you have been if you have yet to sign up to be part of a life group you can do it today and in the lobby uh we have some people back there they'll hook you up with a life group in the area so don't forget to do that if you haven't already and then the only final thing i want to say is if this week or even this morning you realize man i i I didn't really have this whole christian thing right or i just been running myself ragged to prove myself and I'm just tired, And or you've had a bad week and you just need someone to talk with or pray with, our, our prayer team uh, folks are up here for you, okay? So why don't you stand, we'll be dismissed. I hope you can come back next week. We'll continue on in the series. Let me pray for us. Our Father, even today as we walk out into the beauty of the day, as we see the sunshine and the blue sky and uh, the green grass, all of it, may it be a reminder of you who who are not only our creator, but you are our father in heaven. May the reality of that change us today. Change how we live, change how we think. Change how we love others. May May we love folks in such a way we point them to you. And Now may your hand of grace and peace rest on your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here, we'll see you next Sunday.